Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant. With me, I'm lucky to have Sam Hiddle. He's a captain out of Wichita Fire. And uh, I think we're going to have a good uh, hour-long conversation about, man, just so much. Such a good dude. So thanks for coming on, Sam. I appreciate you taking that time out of the day to to talk. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the fire service. So at the time, I was uh, the fifth uh, member of our family to get into the fire service. When I was a kid, I had uncles all up in the Seattle area that were on the job. We'd go visit them, you know, and of course, every kid's got a romantic view of the fire service. Since one of my nephews and my son have got on the job, so we have seven of us uh, doing the service now. It's one of those things where, you know, I had, I had to do something with my life. I really wasn't sure what to do. I didn't perform well in school. I, I later realized why that was. It's just because the way my head works. I thought, I'll give this a try. And I uh, got on a volunteer department in Rose Hill, a suburb of uh, Wichita. I can remember the first time I rode out. I, I loved it. And I started taking fire science classes. And, you know, I quickly realized that what we do is not the same. You know, I, I feel bad for guys that sit on an assembly line and do the same thing for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. As I started to realize how dynamic this was and there's just no end to it. You know, Dennis O'Neill said the fire service is a journey without a destination. And that's one of the beautiful things about our job is we're constantly going to be challenged. We're constantly going to have to be students of the game, be critical students of the game. I enjoy that piece of it. You know, there's a lot of people we help that don't need our help, but there are people that we help and we walk away from it and honestly say that we made a difference. And I know that sounds cheesy and it sounds cliche, but that is the reality of it. What we do is meaningful. So how, how'd you do that transition from volunteering? Now, you know, you want to get into the job. How difficult was it to get on Wichita or was that your first stop even career wise? Uh, Wichita was my first stop. And luckily the fire chief out at the Bali house was a battalion chief in Wichita. And so, you know, he, he helped me uh, get on the path, told me what I needed to do. And at the time is a very competitive I got a shot and, you know, I, I got to tell you, the transition was actually a little bit difficult. I thought it would be easy. I thought I love it this much doing it volunteer. Imagine how much these guys who get paid to be there are going to love it. And that just wasn't the case. I actually found that the volunteers have a little more heart overall as far as ratios go. Yeah, I've, I've kind of seen the same thing over over my career, but I think that's, a testament to everybody gets in a job for a little bit different reasons. You know, some people it's just a job and other people it's a, a calling and some people kind of stumble into it and find that they love it and, and go full. So you've been on Wichita for a little while. Then how did you get plugged in to start teaching and, and, and being kind of around all the classes and stuff like that? Instructing kind of started locally. Uh, and I can remember one of the very first things I did was with uh, thermal imaging at the department. And I didn't have much time on it and, and guys didn't like it, but I had taken an interest in thermal imaging, which is a whole nother story in itself. But we were doing a drill and the battalion chief said, hey, um, talk to these guys about the camera. And, and I cringe at what I probably told them back then, not realizing what I didn't know, but also sharing what you know I had picked up. And I, I just really enjoyed learning about things. I enjoyed uh, sharing what what I had learned with other people. And, and that's why, you know, when we talk about teaching, I, I really call it just sharing. We're not lecturing. We're not, you know, we're, we're teaching. We hope they learn something. But at the end of the day, what we're really doing is sharing and letting them take home what they want. And then I uh, had a chief, Kelly Ross. He had written a couple articles for a fire department training network. And I had read those and I asked him about them. And so I ended up writing my first article and I give him credit to that. And also something I really enjoyed, you know, when you sit down and you have to write out your thoughts and, and try to articulate it in a manner that's bulletproof for all the keyboard commanders, it really does add a lot of clarity to it. And I ended up uh, going back and forth with uh, Mike Champo in some of the early chat groups. And he told me one time when I was up at FDIC, he says, come by the class, um, just come check it out, see what we have going on. So I did. And I walked around the class all day and he just kind of uh, brought me brought me in and, you know, things just went from there. Yeah. Mike has an awesome mentor to, to me, to you, just so many. And it's cool to see what he's done in the fire service. 
talk about the guys that you have gotten a chance to teach with over the years. Cause I, I think there might be a misconception of people that, uh, you know, just take classes and don't really know the dynamics of like, what makes a good cadre, a good cadre. I think a good cadre is made up from people with different experiences. And now that is one of the things that I do like about FDIC is even when I was taking classes as a student, uh, you didn't just go in there and hear about how Wichita does it um, or how New York does it. You got a perspective from different places. But I, I think a good cadre is built with people, different experiences from different uh, geographical locations and people that are going to tell you, you know, hey, this this isn't the only way to do it. We're just we're sharing with how we do it. We're sharing what's worked for us. They have apologetics. They can defend their position. They can tell you why they have the position they do. And I think a good instructor is also somebody who can tell you the pros and cons to what other people are doing. If I can only tell you why I like what I do, that tells you that I have a very narrow, very limited perspective on what I'm doing. If I can say, this is why I like to do what I do, and these people like to do this because of this, this, and this, that tells me that I've actually taken time to study and understand the encompassing view of that particular function or tactic. Oh, that's a good point. I'm always blown away that anybody that gets up to teach or to instruct or to share, as you would say, the amount of effort that has to go in on the front end before you get up and do that sharing is so important. And it's evident, uh, probably everybody listening and, and you included have taken a class where you know that front end work, homework wasn't done. And it seems like a very, uh, a very thin or a very shallow class because they can't defend the position or say the wise. What would you recommend to somebody that's getting like your son's on the job now? And as he, he say, hey, dad, I want to be an instructor. I want to go do what you do. I want to get to be around some of those good people and, and have those opportunities. What would you suggest to the young person on how to even go about that? I would say, um, you know, keep taking classes and and go help. Go, uh, go reset props. Go help build out the class ahead of time. That's probably the biggest thing because you you learn so much from those guys, you know. And I know we already talked about uh, Champo, but you know he's just one of many, and I, and I do mean many. You you couldn't list all the guys who have had influence on my career. Just watching how he interacts with people and and his humility has had a huge influence on me. And, and that wasn't during a class; that was offset, if you will. So tell us about Wichita. What do you want to know? I don't know. I mean, you know, people people see Wichita and they see it burning, right? I don't know. It seems like the busiest place nobody ever heard of. And then, you know, just tell us overall about Wichita and about, about the culture, because I thought the culture is like second to none. Uh, busy, busy fire department. Guys are, uh, and I'm sure... It depends what stations you go to, but the guys seem to be into the job and, you know, they're out the door quick and they're into the training and everything. So tell us more about that. I would say seems is probably a good word. We're busy. We're definitely fortunate. We're we're not the busiest in the country, but we're, we are fortunate. We get to see big city problems. We, uh, we get to go to jobs. Um, I can tell you that the culture has gotten stronger and stronger. You know, we had some... Uh, some guys, when I came on, they saw people like myself and others that had passion and they, they brought us up and, and they were patient and watched the culture change slowly. And now a lot of these guys are in powerful positions and we're influencing the young guys. And so that culture gets built over time. It, it doesn't turn on a dime. And there's a lot of growing pains with that. But I would say one of my biggest regrets um, as a young firefighter was I was a guy that didn't realize what we had. I wanted to work for Chicago. I wanted to work for New York. You know, this wasn't Detroit. And my SOC chief at the time was a lieutenant. He looked up how many fires I went to my rookie year, and it was 49. And I just thought that was normal. And I came to realize later that, you know, that's that's a decent number. That's a good uh, base to start getting some experience. And so I started to look at things a little bit differently and and realize what we had. And one of those things that we have that I think is beautiful. Actually, a couple of things that we have that I think are beautiful is one, we get to see things, we get to do things, we get to experience some big city problems, uh, maybe not on the same frequency as other people, but yet we're still small enough that we can affect change. So if we need to do something different tactically, or we need to um, implement something new, 
Uh, we can affect change in a relatively quick manner. What What is the size and, and strength of Wichita Fire? So we're uh, getting over 500 people right now. We've got 23 houses. And everyone always asks square miles, and I honestly uh, couldn't tell you what that looks like. I can tell you what our good houses are. I can tell you what our slower houses are. But as far as square miles, uh, I couldn't put that together. We're spread out. I will tell you that. And, you know, it takes a while to get some help because we're spread out. A lot of cities that are locked in on land, they don't have the option to go outward. What we do, because we do have the option to go outward, is we will pretty much build new parts of the city and kind of abandon other parts. So you talk about... um busyness and you talk about the culture change have you guys always had a culture of training that's one of the other things that i think is really nice about our culture unique about our culture you know we got guys that are getting experience but yet there's still a desire and daily expectation that we're going to grow that we're going to develop in some manner and so we have that training you know i see a lot of departments that have a love for the job and and they do a lot of training or you have departments that are getting the experience and so they disregard the training. And we have both. Me personally, I think that's a very unique place to be. What what are hazards that you've seen in your travels of departments that get the jobs but don't reinforce it with training? Or maybe how they fight fires are bad habits that just don't go really bad. But what have you seen um, when a department has to disconnect between the training and, and work. You know, to quote what Halton said one time, he said, experience without reflection is just interesting. There's a reason that nationally we have an expectation that we're going to hot wash um, big alarms, that we do after action reviews, things like that. We need to be analytical and critical about uh, how we performed. So that's where that training allows you to fine tune some things, or I don't know if this is really relevant, but I had a chief ask me one time when I was a young firefighter, he said, Hey, Hiddle, do you think those books really help you? And I said, no, I don't, I don't think that they really help me at the fire, but I think they're uh, very useful when I evaluate what I did at the fire, because a lot of times um, the things we read, whether it's personal training or company level training or department level training. A lot of times, if we're willing to take time and evaluate what we did and how we did them, we come back to that training and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. That makes sense now. If I did that, I probably wouldn't have got jammed up. Oh, that makes sense. How do you how do you take what you are reading in those books then and highlight it, mirror it up against, uh, you know, whether it was after a fire or the or the before the fire? Because you're a nerd. Uh, like me. And sometimes we jump down rabbit holes and I feel like we need to have people that will jump down those rabbit holes, but come out of the hole with three options written in crayon. Uh, because most people just truthfully, they don't want to, they don't want to figure that out. Just tell me what I got to do and I'm going to do it. Um, so how do you, how do you jump down a hole and then come back up and make it relatable to your, to your men? With the intention of minimalizing. If you call somebody a minimalist on our job, uh, that's fighting words. You know, you can say something about their wife, their kids, their mother, but you call somebody a minimalist, um, that, that's, a, that's an insult. And I don't think it should be. I think we should strive for minimalism. It's how we achieve minimalism that matters. If I'm a minimalist because the only thing I know how to do is what I learned in the academy, then that's a negative thing. That's a bad deal, right? But if I achieve minimalism through maximalism, then that's what's ideal. And that's where that training and the reading and reflection and the experience all come together. And we try to look at all the scenarios and then bring it back to what something you just referred to was three things, right? Because um, you're talking about a mental mindset of being able to process information. And so we achieve that minimalism through maximalism by making it this big and then bringing it back to something this small that is effective and efficient and easy to remember and apply, then that's going to relate to most guys because you're right. Most guys just want to know what to do. And we do need people to come up with systems that work the majority of the time that are simplistic to apply and remember. So I know you helped me out when we were trying to develop our after action review plans. Um, how do you do that? How do you take our last conversation and say, this is what we were talking about. We went on this fire and, you know, highlight or, uh, or underline those important things that you, you hope to get out of the, that you hope would show up 
post-training? This is something that I'm I'm struggling with, and, and I think most people who are really passionate struggle with. We can talk about things for hours, but the reality is other people can only talk about things for five minutes sometimes. So you have to understand what the bandwidth or the attention capacity of your audience is. And if it's short, then you're just going to have to pick the three most important things. And maybe you reduce that group to uh, people who are more involved and add another four things. But there comes a point where they will start to become deaf to what you're saying. You know, we, we live in a TikTok world. What's one of the first things you do when you look at a video? Look at the time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and if it's 15 minutes, what do you do? Pick a new one. Yep, you pick a new one that's two minutes. So that's the reality of it. You, you, you have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. You're probably not going to get all of the things that you want out of that particular alarm. And you're going to have to narrow it down to what's most important and what you feel like is most beneficial for them to retain. Why don't we jump in a little bit on, I want to know a little bit more about you guys' academy and how you divvy up engine and truck functions and what like the training looks like for Wichita. And where you guys get that information, because it seems like you guys are pretty dialed in with with best practices. So that goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where, you know, a lot of us young guys were out there taking classes and we we're being encouraged to take classes. So we were going out there and we were maximizing things. We were looking at how they did it and we were coming back and we were trying things and we were seeing if they worked for us. And Keith Neiman took over the academy for a while, and he really started to uh, get some of those important changes made, particularly on the engine company side of things. And now we have Clint Gifford in there, and he's got a good cadre of people. we got a kid, Winton, and this guy, Kerfoot, who I used to work with. And they're kind of going back to what we were saying, where you've got to pick what's most important. And they're just really hammering out the basics and making sure these kids come out with the ability to get dressed with gloves on, to put the line in place, to be able to throw ladders, to be able to search. And they let them evolve through their career. So if you want to end up getting on a truck company later, then you've got to go through a truck academy. And if you want to get on a rescue, then you apply and you will go through rescue training. But we don't try to give it to you all in a short period of time because we can't. What is what does your truck academy and rescue training look like for somebody that wants to and is accepted to get into those programs? If you do the truck academy, generally we do search We've done can fires, thermal imaging, apparatus placement, um, cutting out of a bucket, cutting off of a ladder, cutting off walkable. We do forcible entry. Chief Matt Bowen oversees our uh, truck company operations and Chief Gadbury, they did a great job. They, they fight to get us money because they know we're going to destroy things. I don't want to give the number, but they spent thousands of dollars on this last truck academy so that we could cut real metal, cut on real doors, cut on roofs. And we revisit ladders. I don't know if I said that or not. And once we get through that, then we will do truck company training as things become available. If we get a commercial building with a built-up flat roof, then we will make all the uh, truck members actually go down and we'll do a mini academy for a couple of days. If we get a building that has a unique search, then we will bring guys down and review some of the search. Give you an example. We got a church one time, and this church was housing people overnight in the basement in little SROs. So we saw an opportunity to address a unique search challenge, what would be considered a commercial building. So we brought everybody down and ran drills. Uh, we put a little door in there, not wasn't a tough pop, but, you know, we, we made him start off with the force and, and made him delegate the uh, search. Nice. Uh, what do you keep your drill times to? Now, outside of like that truck school or, or squad school, uh, if if you're the captain for the day and you're uh, we're going to do a little drill, what, what are you keeping your your times to? So if you asked uh, my guys 10 minutes, that's the run show, 10 minutes. I figured out a while back as a lieutenant that if I told them we we're going to go out and drill for four hours, we we're going to drill for five hours, they would pace themselves and they would they would kind of step back, right, and wait for the long game. But if I say, hey, we're going to go work on this for 10 minutes, and then you let them get involved, you let them continue to uh, ask the what if. So, hey, we're going to set up this system for 10 minutes. And they set up the system and they'll, they'll start asking questions, right? Or you can start asking questions. 
Maybe sometimes you ask a question and they can't quite answer it, right? So what do you do? You go, hey, you know what? Set it up that way and see what happens. Or they'll start asking questions. So like, well, couldn't we just do this? And sometimes you know that system's going to fail. And you say, I don't know. Let's take a look at it, right? And we'll build out systems intentionally knowing they're going to fail. And we watch them fail. And that's been invaluable because the questions they're asking are logical. They're reasonable. What we don't want to do is slow down an operation when it matters because a logical question hasn't been answered. You know, we're setting up a system to try to get somebody out of something and they go, well, why don't we just do this? And then it clicks to them. Hey, you know what? We already did that and it failed. That's why we don't do that. And they move on. Yeah, for sure. From a busy urban you know, uh, captain, give me the quick five minute on thermal imaging. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Give give me a couple of minutes worth. I would say when it comes to uh, thermal imaging, we think it's a handheld fire coach. We don't understand how it actually interprets the electromagnetic spectrum around us. We don't have the cognitive ability to process what the uh, screen is telling us. Uh, you get into reflections, you get into environments that are subjective, you get into a lot of the stuff that salespeople say, you know, that, hey, we got the most accurate crosshairs and it's got to be within plus or minus uh, 10% to be NFPA compliant, but the angles we look at things, the distance we look at things. I mean, I, I can look at a center block wall at a 50 degree angle and bring your temperatures down a couple hundred degrees. So those finite things really end up making a difference. You know, it's particularly, you can look at two similar things and apply Kirchhoff's law and get different readings. It, it's, a, it's a very complicated technology that takes time. It takes time to learn. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I encourage people, if they're going to train, pick up the camera and add the camera into your training. Uh, make that part of uh, your muscle memory, part of your routine. That way it becomes part of the dual process theory. How are you using the camera on the fires you go in as an officer? As an officer, you know, one of my guys, he'll tell you that when we go in that front door and I stop, he knows to just give me a moment. He knows that what I'm doing is I'm scanning and then I'm going to make a plan. So he knows to uh, give me that moment. I'm going to scan. I'm going to take a look at things. I'm going to weigh them against what I saw on the outside and we're going to go to work. When I scan a lot of times, if I'm going to push them into a room or we need to cover some footprint to get to where we want to start a search, then I'm going to actually pause and I'm going to show them. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to show somebody, hey, this is what the room looks like. There's your window. And I'll tell them, hey, go break that window and let it lift. You don't have a camera. Control the door. Let that room lift. Get a good search on it. When you come out, go left. And I'll take off down the hallway and try to find the next place that we're going to be. Because when I was a firefighter, if I had an officer that didn't have a plan, I made my own. So one of the things I try to do with the thermal imager is constantly build out a plan. That way, when they come out, they go left. I already know where I want them to go next. So there was your five minutes thermal imaging cameras. Give me your quick deal on, on forcible entry. Uh, forcible entry is just fun, right? Who, I mean, who doesn't like to break things? Maybe I can articulate it this way. I like forcible entry because you have to think about things. You have to look at the system and figure out what the weak point in the system is. But once you decide what the weak point in the system is, it's just uh, brute force muscle and Neanderthal work after that, right? So you get to do both. You get to think and you get to be a, uh, get to be a monkey and just go to work. Has your thought process on forcible entry changed from the time you were a young guy and had all the energy in the world and all the brute force and, and everything to as you get older? And I can say that because I'm older now too. I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of energy to waste, but I think forcible entry is a perfect example of that. Absolutely. Uh, and that comes back to trying different things, looking at different ways to do things and coming up with something that is consistent uh, across the board is going to work for everything, but something that is, requires very little effort. And so when I got my uh, physics, I started looking at how we swing and we put so much effort into a swing uh, using our body when all we've got to use is rotational acceleration and understand how the fulcrums on our own bodies are working. One of my biggest regrets is not really discovering bar-to-bar -bar work sooner. 
It's funny, I was going through some old videos and I found where we were dabbling with bar to bar about eight years ago, but didn't really understand how to get the power out of the bar. I, I didn't understand the dance and the routine. And it's something that we've refined over the last couple of years. And we're taking doors down in a third to half the time that everybody else is. What is it's, bar uh, in any uh, two Halligans using two Halligans? It's a great process, especially in zero visibility. And we're getting ready to release some videos on fire engineering on it. We recently had a fire where uh, Levi Maxson and I were in a tight space, very limited visibility. If he's in a better position to apply the force, I don't have to move. I just hand him my bar. Like he helps me set my bar and then I hand him the bar and he will rotate it into the door. And I take his bar and I capture all the progress that he just made. And then maybe he has to drive me again, which in this case, he didn't have to, but, and then he's in a position on my left side to actually apply the force. So I just trade bars with him. That's one of the beauties of it. You know, when you got a hammer and a bar, I'm not going to trade you my bar for a hammer. There, there's no way that bar does way more for me than that hammer does. Right. Especially once we get inside, but I'll trade you a $20 bill for a $20 bill. And if you think about it, you know, what do we do with the hammer? We, we drive the bar and then we try to capture the progress. Well, think about if I put a bar in and I make one step and I just stop and hold the bar with all that progress, then the next bar comes in and just takes the next step. And then they hold all that progress. And then that bar comes out of the door and they go to the next step. We're not kneeling down. We're not kicking the ax out. And most importantly, we're not trying to shove a straight ax blade through something we need curve for. Even if we get to the point where we need the ads and we're trying to hold it with the axe, what does it do to the axe blade? It just rolls it back, right? And closes the door a little bit. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. I would, it does. I'd encourage guys to take a look at the videos when they come up. It'd probably make a little more sense. But what I'm saying is it's a dance. You're just using two bars to go step one, second bar does step two. Bar one comes out, does step three. Second bar comes out, does step four. And you can get plenty of force out of it if you hit right. I mean, after all, you're hitting with a 10-pound tool now and not an eight. You just have to know how to swing it. All we carry is bar to bar. Everybody carries a bar. One of my proud moments is we ran a uh, CO alarm and we came out and I looked at the guys. We had four Halligans, one roof hook and a meter. That's how religious the guys are on carrying their own bar to everything. EMS will make fun of us because we'll be on a car wreck and you'll have six guys that all have Halligans. You got that many Halligans on your rescue or has everybody got their own tools? Actually, we have the Halligans on the rescue and then everyone has their own tools. That's good. Makes sense. What's your residential forcible entry look like? Because I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, we're doing the doors, we're doing the, the hard forcible entry training, but most of the residential doors are easy, can basically be donkey kicked open. Why am I going to apply the force or why do I need to know all the, all the everything when 90% of our work is an easy force residential door? Usually the easy doors are the front doors, right? We got a lot of drop bars on the back. You got boards leaned up against it. You got boards nailed over the reveal. Uh, you've got refrigerators that are uh, blocking it. So no, I, I wouldn't say that the residential is easy. Uh, usually the front door is probably the easiest thing we're going to do on a residential. But then there's other doors inside that building that we might want to get. Bring this full circle and, and show the ideology that we talked about earlier. Residential and commercial forcible entry is no different. We do things the same way. Uh, that way we don't have to go, okay, this is commercial. We have to change this. We have a technique and an approach that works no matter what we're faced with. Walk me through that technique and approach as you walk up to a door. Hopefully we remember to uh, try before we pry because more than anything, we just want to blow the door apart. But first guy's going to go up and he's going to see if it's open. And if it's not, he's going to gap it. Well, a lot of times guys don't really shock it. Funny thing is, is when guys do shock it, they don't even shock in the right place. Uh, they don't understand the engineering of the doors and all they do is destroy the door a little bit, right? And so guy's going to uh, kind of gap the stop down low. He's going to slide up. He's going to hold it. Guy's going to set his forks, going to drive those forks in to uh, pry a little bit. We go with the bevel towards the door. We're about easy in, easy out. We know we get an easier set, but we also know it's going to slip out if we get greedy. So he's going to pry a little bit. And as he pries, the next guy's going to come in, they're going to put bevel to jam and we're going to drive, get them set. Then they're going to pry and they're going to hold everything. 
once that bar hits the door and you max the door, the next guy brings his bar out. He puts the ads in there, and then he's going to go upwards with that 15 to 1 mechanical advantage. He's not going to rotate out. If you rotate out, you get a 6 to 1. Uh, it's, it's not worth it. Plus, a lot of times you're not into the integrity of the door or you're missing the uh, king studs on commercial. And that's a whole nother story about uh, sucking the bar inside the door. They're going to go up with the bar. And then here's the thing. If that doesn't work, going to try to paint a picture. It's going to be difficult. But if I rotate upward and I get all two inches out of that ads, now that bar is parallel to the door, right? Either up or down. So now what we've done is we built the door out a little bit. The next bar comes in and they just work off of the jam. And now instead of forcing off of the door, they're forcing off of that bar that's about an inch and a half out. And it brings that door back to us and gives us more uh, radius for force. Very nice. I don't know if you can throw this in anywhere, but I will say this. You know, I'll, I'll be gone soon. And one of the things I really look forward to is what these young guys that we've invested in are going to do with our department. You know, we came in and made a lot of changes from what some old guys in our department did, and, and they took insult to it. Maybe it was the way we approached it, telling them they were doing it wrong. But at the end of the day, they really built a foundation and, and they shouldn't be insulted. They, they should want us to come in and, and take what they had and build on it and make it better. I can tell you that with our training academy, these kids are coming out of the training academy with the knowledge that took us 10 to 15 years to learn or achieve. And so they're, they're far more ahead of them than where we were at that time on the job. And if they can take that and build on it and make it better, I think that's going to be outstanding. You know, we're not talking about change for the sake of change. We're talking about building and making things better. Well, that's good. Has your academy started to bring up those younger guys to have them be part of the uh, of the truck and the engine engine cadres? Yeah, I mean, if you if you show yourself, well, you've got houses that are busier than others. You know, we've got guys that you know a couple of years on the job have gone to a significant amount of fires, and you compound that with a good officer that can explain to them why they're doing things and when to do those things. They're advanced, and if they show themselves to be to be humble, competent, and they have the street credibility, then yeah, we we bring them in and we let them help out. Uh, we're not going to make them lead instructors, but they come in and they start communicating with uh, the younger guys. Well, I think that takes us to a, a more important question. I'm getting older on the job. You're getting older on the job. We've done some good work, but we're not going to be here forever. And if all the progress would die on my retirement, your retirement, Champo's retirement, we failed the fire service. How do we set them up for success to not fail or to not see a squirrel and start running down the wrong path? Man, that, that's a tough question, but I, I would almost say that you just got to pick the right people. You've got to pick people that aren't going to just give you an answer because you asked a question, but care enough to give you the right answer and have the relationships that, you know, if I don't know or I don't understand, I'm going to reach out and call a retired guy. I call retired people all the time. I call people from around the country uh, when I get jammed up and there's not somebody internally that can help us and say, hey, wh why were you doing this? Or what do you think of this? Or what am I overlooking here? What are we missing? Are we going to do something that's going to cause us to fail? So I think bringing in people that have the knowledge, the experience, the communication, but also the humility to, to work as a team and utilize resources to give you the best product. Yeah. And I think we hit it before a little bit, like you instructors and the people that are out there leading have to know the whys. And at some point we have to have all gone down the rabbit hole, or you at least need to be familiar with the rabbit hole on where you got. Because if we miss that point, uh, it's too easy just to left turn. We're going triple layer load. Like, wait, <laughs> it took us so long to go to here. And this is the whys, but man, we need to, at some point we got to communicate those whys, how we got here. Oh, absolutely. That's something that, that I like to do with our company is when we're drilling, I'll ask them questions. What's the load on that? What's the standard on that? What does the high rise standard say about where a riser has to be? And start asking them those technical questions so that they can justify and validate their position. And they'll ask me questions. I had a guy who, you know, on the surface, it could look like he was challenging me, but he would ask me why all the time. Why this? Why that? 
And I didn't take insult to it. I was fine with it because there were times where I couldn't give him an answer. And that's when I did have to reach out to somebody else in the department or a retired guy or somebody else nationally and go, hey, why is this? And then I benefit and the company benefits. No, it's, it's good. Is there an appropriate and inappropriate time to ask you those why questions? And this is going to sound bad, but you ask me why at the wrong time, usually the guys can see it in my eyes. That it's a bad time. So then no. They usually know. How much do you um, rely on your, on your senior men to answer some of those questions? Or do you always have to be the one uh, that people go to? Oh, I rely on them a lot. When we step off the rig, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want them to talk to me. I want them to know what they're doing. Uh, go do it. You know, we'll talk about it afterwards and figure out if we could have done something better. And even then, a lot of times we'll do a what if. We'll try to maximize the alarms that we get. So we'll talk about what actually happened, uh, why they did it. And I'll talk about what my mindset was so that they know where I'm coming from and why I did the things that I did. And then we'll usually throw in a what if, you know, like, okay, so what if that fire wouldn't have been here and it would have been over there? And we'll go through that and we'll try to get more out of that same alarm as far as being critical. But those senior guys to not talk to them when we come off the rig is absolutely invaluable. I have things that I'm thinking about. I have things that I'm trying to accomplish and for everybody to do their job makes things more efficient and more effective. So you're looking in that, in those, that initial time when you're taking in the scene, are you looking for the uh, opportunities to audible out or when your initial plan's not going to work or what are you looking at as the, as that first due officer? When you come in as a first due company, you know, those are pretty easy. We're going to get the door. We're going to help the line in place and we're going to search or we're going to vent. Those, those are pretty standard and, and pretty straightforward, you know, unless something that's really out of the norm is occurring. And then as we're going to be second due or we're going um, deeper into the city to assist on somebody else's first due run. The nice thing is we're listening to the radio traffic in the cab. We'll start talking about, okay, it doesn't sound like they're doing this, or it sounds like it's a fortified building. We might be doing this. And we'll start talking about what could possibly be happening, right? And as we get closer, we hear more traffic. And so we start going, okay, well, they just assigned a topside vent to a truck. So we're not going to be doing that. Uh, we're probably going to be looking at search or softening this building. So you brought it up, topside vent. It seems like vertical ventilation used to be a uh, thing that was pretty common. Then we had a shift across the country where everybody stopped doing it because it was too dangerous. Um, and now it's kind of making a resurgence. Talk to us about vertical vent in Wichita and how that evolved for you guys. I would say the resurgence is because it works, plain and simple. When I came on, we weren't doing it, and we, we re-implemented it and started doing it. And there, there was a lot of uh, animosity from some people about it, and you know the same, same arguments that people are having everywhere. It's, it's too dangerous. We don't need it. But what we ended up finding out as we started implementing it on our fire ground was the naysayers, the people that were against it, actually started asking for it. And you could sometimes hear it in their voice where they're getting frustrated with us because they're like, hey, where's our vent? Or we need vent now. And even hearing that saw running up top and knowing that the line is coming in behind you, there's peace of mind to that. You know, when you're in some heat and you can't see anything, when you start hearing that saw, it gives you a comfort to hold up there or keep going deeper on that search because you know things are going to get better. When you don't hear that saw and you know that visibility is not going to get any better, then that really starts to slow things down. Vertical vent works because it allows the most smoke out of the building with one maneuver. You know, it's having a conversation with a friend from New York about it. And Chief Dave Rhodes and I were talking to him about it. And he was saying that they, they don't do topside because basically they don't need to. And there was a lot of merit to that. On the house, they have so many people there that if they need to open up windows, whether that be from outside vent positions or people in there searching, opening up their own windows, which I'm a big advocate for. Because if I open up a window when I'm searching and something goes wrong, I'm already at a window, right? Uh, if I open up a window, I know that I have the door controlled. If they're opening up windows for us on the outside, they don't necessarily know that. They don't know what's going to happen. But the point I'm making is because of their resources and their tactical objectives, they're able to open that thing up and get a lot of smoke out of the building and get a lot of it searched very quickly. Departments like yours, departments like mine that are resource limited, 
if we can do one thing and get a lot of that smoke out all at once, then that's extremely valuable. We don't have 15 people in there searching. We usually have two companies. When do you tell crews these are going to be your indications for topside ventilation? I know we haven't done it for years. We're bringing it back. These are the when you should be going up. I would say we made a lot of bad decisions at the beginning. We overcut things. We were cutting things that we didn't need to. And just like anything you implement, that's going to happen. You're, you're going to overdo it until you get some experience. Sometimes we thought, let's go put a hole in this thing and you cut it and you louver it. And you're like, well, that wasn't much return. And you start looking at what did I see before? What made me think that that was needed? And the next one you go up and you cut it and you louver it and you get great return. And, and it actually lights off on you, which is you know just one of the most beautiful things to see when you're standing up there. And you start asking yourself, what did I see coming up here that made me think we needed it at this time? And that's where experience starts to play in. So the next time you pull up, you're going, this is similar to the time it was effective. And this is similar to the time when we didn't really need it. So you start to temper things. And I'll give you an example. So you, you get assigned to the top. You're still going to go up top. You're still going to throw your ladder. You're going to put your guys on top of the roof. You're going to have your saws up there. You're going to have your tools ready to uh, louver and punch the ceiling. But your experience is telling you we might not really need this. So that's when you get on the radio and you start asking questions. Chief, you still want that hole or talk to fire attack directly. Hey, fire attack, you still need that hole. And a lot of times their experiences will start to play in it and they'll start saying, no, no, uh, hold off on that. I think we're going to get it. Or somebody just opened up a window and uh, we're, we're starting to get the lift and we got the fire knocked down. So don't open it up. What about the location of fire and indication for vertical vent? Talk to that a little bit. For us, again, we're, we're thinking vertical vent on the card. So we're going to put guys up there and they're going to have to figure out if they want to do it or not. I have a, a couple slides in one of the presentations I do where we have a, a three-story. There's coming out of the first floor. And I ask the question or I pose the question, do you cut this? And of course, the answer is no, you don't cut it. It's a first floor fire and you're standing on top of a three. So you don't cut it. And then I tell them, or I show them that we actually did cut it, but we didn't cut it right away. Because what else do we know from fires, from our experience? What else do we uh, preach in the books? Where does fire run? It runs between the walls. It runs through chases, right? So a first floor fire can get in the walls and end up in the cock loft, which it did on that one. And so again, that's where experience starts to come into play. We can't just go off of statements that if it's a first floor fire, you don't cut it. What we say is it's not a priority to cut it right now. It's a priority to get the fire knocked down. It's a priority to get in there and search it. It's a priority to open up the walls and figure out where it's going. But we know that there's potential for this thing to actually get in the channels and run to the top. So let's get a crew up there in case we do need to cut it so it doesn't run the cock loft on us. So let's talk a little bit in top floor fires and fires in the attic. A lot, of, a lot of people that I talk to say, well, if it's in the attic, it's too dangerous to be up on the roof. So I don't want to be doing the cut. Again, that, that just comes back to the experience. Uh, we went on one not too long ago. We're going up, I'm sounding the roof, and it starts to feel different. And so I had to take a cognitive pause because there's part of me that actually wanted to keep going where I could see fire coming out of the peak. But the other part of me knew that things were actually deteriorating underneath our feet. So all we did on that one was walked over to the right about eight feet and tried again. And we went up there and we put a hole in it. And I'm glad we did. They got the lift they needed. And it turns out that the nozzle actually blew a hole through the roof where we were going to try to walk up. When you get up on the roof, you guys get assigned vertical ventilation. As an officer, how long are you thinking this should take from getting your tools off the rig to getting up on the roof to cutting to getting back down? So this is going to seem like a long time, but if it's over five minutes, I'm unhappy. And five minutes really seems like a long time, right? But the reality is, is over coffee, you know, everything we do happens in seconds on the fire ground to set the brake, get off the rig, carry the ladders over there, get your tools, negotiate the front yard, or if you need to get into the backyard for some reason, get your ladders thrown, especially especially if you've got to work off of a ladder, get masked up. And we do mask up when we go to the roof for the most part, 
get up there and actually get your hole and get it punched, that stuff takes time. Again, to me, I hate to say five minutes because that sounds like forever, but that is the reality is it does take time. So anything over five minutes for me is just too long. Good. Now, I think the misconception too is that a vertical ventilation operation is going to be like a 15 or 20 minute drill. When I know if I was instant commander, like I want the hole now and don't jerk around on the roof, cut the hole and get off the roof. Uh, the fastest, the best thing we can do is get up there, get it cut and get right back down. That, that makes it safer for them inside. And then I don't got dudes on the roof, you know? Again, some guys would probably criticize us, but you'll, you'll see us drop down to the uh, the low part of the pitch and hang out sometimes and just make sure that what we've done is, is adequate. You know, sometimes you, uh, you back off from your hole and you take a look at it. You look left, you look right, you look at the eaves and you look for that smoke that you originally saw to lay down on you. A lot of times that initial hole, it'll lay down on you. And if you take that extra 20 or 30 seconds to just watch it, you'll see that, okay, now that we've got a vent, we've actually changed things, right? We've got a Franklin stove going and we're starting to feed it. So it's going to actually build a little bit if they're not getting water on the fire. And if it starts to build, then we'll go back up and we'll expand it. So we're, we're kind of big on getting to a position of safety, which is what you're advocating for. And, and we agree, but also taking an extra moment to make sure that we're not going to come down too soon when we needed more. Very good. I think tactically, last thing I'd like to jump into is talk to me about your thoughts and plan for search. It really depends on the time of day, building and the fire conditions. Bedrooms always have to be a consideration. Where the fire is located always has to be a consideration. So to be able to say that we're always going to go to the fire doesn't really hold up. And to say that we're always going to go to the bedrooms first doesn't always hold up. What I can tell you is they are both considerations and we have to prioritize that. When we do go to the fire, a lot of times I will just meet up with the line boss and tell them, hey, when you get this thing knocked down, get the search for us. We're going to go other places. Because so what we don't want to do is hold up at the fire room, which is one of the most difficult things to search because you've got people in there. A lot of the stuff has melted together. A lot of times the ceiling has been blown out and falls down. It takes a while to sift through a good fire area. So we'll put that on the engine, knock it down and, and start taking a look around. And we're going to go other places in the building, especially because the chances for survivability are greater somewhere else. My job is to navigate the footprint. Their job is to put hands on things. And that's where I'll hold a hand out and say, okay, up here. And, and I'll actually touch them and grab them. It's, it's not uncommon for two doors to fold on the same wall. And so if I just say there's a bedroom on the left, how do I know which one they went in? And that's where I take a look with the thermal imager. You figure out it's a bedroom, put your hand out for the guy that can't see, and you put them in that room that you want them to be in. And you tell them, when you come out, go left. And then the next guy, hey, come up here. You put them in the other bedroom, and you say, when you come out, go left. And I'll take off down the hall or somewhere else in the structure. By getting an idea of what type of room gives me an idea of how long I have before I have to give them something else to do. For instance, I might put one guy in a bedroom and put another guy in a hallway bath. Well, I know that that guy in the hallway bath is going to be with me in about 10 seconds. And so I expect to feel him on my shoulder. And if I don't, then something's gone wrong. And then we'll go back and get the other guy and we'll, we'll keep pushing them into rooms. Or if we get into a large room, again, the thermal imager, hey, see this room? I want you to go right. Make sure you get behind that couch. I want you to go left. When you meet each other, yell out for me and they'll go out and they'll search. And then I'll say, okay, come with me. We're going to go down this hallway or we're going to go into the kitchen. And at that point, again, I show guy with the imager, hey, get this kitchen. You, I want you to go in this garage. When you come out, let me know. And I know that there is no left or right there. So I've just got to kind of hang out and wait for him. Well, that's good. Uh, you mentioned uh, putting hands on things. What tools is, are your members taking in with them? Halligans. Our OV will uh, carry a hook, but bars, uh, yes. bars and flashlights. Good. Um, so I think we've hit everything on the fire side. A couple of just quick questions I want to wrap up with. Um, talk to me about like your family and work-life balance, if you want. Oh, my, my family is incredible. I've got a, a good wife. She supports me. 
She supported me through the times um, that I was really frustrated on the job, and, and she's happy for me when we're going through good times. I told Dave McGrail one time, this is the best job in the world if you don't care. It's a good job if you do. And what I mean by that is when you care about the job, we take it personal. It can get frustrating at times. So to get her support during those times uh, is invaluable. I, I genuinely believe that your, your home life affects your work life and your work life affects your home life. I've got great kids. I've got a daughter who swears she'll never marry a fireman. And I've got another child that is a fireman. And uh, we're fortunate to work at the same house. Cool. Uh, what I think last thing, what would you tell young Sam just getting on the job? And I'm probably sure you've told Isaiah this too, but like, what do you wish you would have done different or say, Hey, this, this could probably save you a few years of frustration or can uh, help you get where you need to be a little quicker. I think I would have told him not to tell people they're stupid, but to take the approach that I do in training now, rather than look at somebody and go, why are you doing that? You're an idiot. Say, Hey, have you tried it this way? Like when we're training, you know, I'll say, hey, give this a try. They'll come to their own conclusions. What's better? Maybe their way's better. Uh, maybe what we're sharing is better. But they'll come to their own conclusions. But what they need to do is try both of them. When you tell somebody that what they're doing is stupid, then, of course, they're going to take a, a defensive posture and, and they're going to dig in and, and try to justify why their way is better. But when you say, hey, try this or let's do this and we'll come to the right conclusion because we'll all see the same things. Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with result. Exactly. Better way of saying it. That's good. Uh, I know you've been such a help to me through the years, and uh, I've got you on speed dial for any questions that come up, and you're always willing to, to help with those things. What What's the best way for people to get a hold of you if they got any questions or just want to reach out to you, pick your brain, or bring you in to, to share one of the, the subjects that you do? All right, so you're going to love this. It's uh, shittle at wichita.gov or shittle at traditions training. So S Hiddle. Funny thing is, is now that my kids on the job, my initial with my last name is on the back of my coat. So back of my coat says shittle. And a lot of times I'll try to enter my email into things and they'll kick it back and say, no, we don't, uh, we don't accept derogatory stuff. That's good. I never, I never put two and two together. Yeah, it's a, it's a great combination. My parents didn't think about it either. Well, sweet. Anything else you want to wrap up? No, nah, I mean, I always enjoy going back and forth with you, Grant. You do things for the right reason. You keep things pure. And, you know, you, you talk about instructors and, and why they do it. And the, the purity is something that gets lost for a lot of guys. Uh, it becomes about money. It becomes about them. And I would say that stuff you're doing is uh, genuine. So I hope the uh, two people listening picked up a nugget. It's you and me that are going to re-listen. Likewise, I love just being able to, we talked about, it was a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it. We were like, dude, if we could just record what we would normally talk about, and if anybody gives a crap, cool. And if they don't, they can find something else. But man, I, I cherish the friendships that I got in the fire service, the conversations I get to have. And I just, uh, the Lord blessed me with being able to do the job I always wanted to do and surround me just by just solid people. So thank you for being one of those. And I, I definitely appreciate you. No, thank you. All right. Well, this wraps up this episode of The Journeyman. I hope you enjoyed it. I have zero idea when the next one's going to come out, but I'm I'm sure in time it'll it'll ping into your uh, podcast alerts and the next one will pop up. So just stay passionate about the job. Keep your mission pure. And thanks for listening.